Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. This week, game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly will review a cooperative game and have a related design discussion. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast, and today we're going to talk about journeys in Middle-Earth. Yeah, and the design discussion this week is going to be on action resolution and different ways to do that. So this game uses cards. We know that people use dice, and there's lots of other options as well. So it'll be a uh, pretty interesting discussion, I think. Absolutely. All right, so uh, just to kind of jump in, if you haven't heard about it already, this is The Lord of the Rings, Journeys in Middle-Earth, uh, newest game from Fantasy Flight Games. And uh, Peter, you want to get into the theme, even though since it's Lord of the Rings, we can kind of already guess what to expect a bit. So Journeys in Middle-Earth is set between The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, and I'm sure most of you out there know the story of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. It's in a fantasy universe, orcs, trolls, goblins, all that good stuff. There's even some dragons thrown in for good measure. So very fantasy universe. You take on the role of a band of adventurers, and one of the strange things, and we can talk about this later, is you could be anything from... The main heroes, such as Bilbo, Legolas, Gimli, to some very random characters that I haven't ever heard of before. Berevor was definitely in the Lord of the Rings card game. I think she might have been in the core set, even. And the other lady, I think, was a character in Middle-Earth Quest. So they're definitely, like, in Fantasy Flight, sort of uniquely created, non-canon Lord of the Rings characters. They've appeared in other uh, things, but yeah, definitely not in the books. Yeah, so a little bit of an interesting decision there, but you can play as some of your favorite heroes if you want, and that is the basic gist of it. So, Mike, why don't you get into the gameplay? So, this is an app-integrated game. There is no way to play it without the app, so no, like, option to use uh, cards or something instead. And it is a long-form campaign, so you also can't do one-offs. I believe the campaign is 12 missions, is that right? I have no idea. Yeah, I think it's 12. I, I've gotten uh, most of the way through the campaign, uh, actually a couple times. Within a single mission, uh, you'll either be on a set of kind of typical tiles that are laid out as you explore them, or some missions will actually use these battle boards that are much more self-contained little things for like quicker fights or investigation scenarios or those kind of things. On your turn, you get two actions, and you can move, you can interact with tokens. If you've played Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition, this is very, very, very similar in terms of the interface. Like, the tokens will be face-up on the app, and you can uh, click on them to interact with them. Uh, You can also fight enemies, and uh, some of the interactions you'll have might get you items. But one of the key things is that at the beginning of every turn, you have this deck of skill cards... Uh, You start with about 15 of them, and you can add more as you progress through the campaign. And you'll draw two of those cards, and you can prepare one of them. That means put it face up in your play area, and basically save it to use later. And all the cards have some kind of, or most of the cards have some kind of special text on them, and the only way to get that special text to go off is to prepare them first. So every turn you get, like, one chance to prepare a card. But then you can also put the cards on the top or the bottom, and every card has either a... A fate icon, has a success icon, or has nothing. And like Peter said, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, task resolution in this one. To do anything in the game, you flip up cards equal to the statistic being tested, and you count how many successes you got, and the fate icons, if you flip them up, can become successes if you discard these inspiration tokens. 
But that's about it. You're uh, trying to race against a clock in the app. It's got this threat track that keeps on counting up. Also, if any of you get defeated, then you lose the game. And you're trying to, you know, complete whatever objective the app has set for you. But that being said, it is like Arkham Horror, the card game, in that you will keep on going and you can progress through the entire campaign regardless of your results. You just might have different things happen or have a harder time. But yeah, you can't, like, lose for good. You always have uh, the story continuing regardless. Very cool. Well, for those of you first joining us, thank you. And what we do is we talk about the top five things we think about the game, starting from number five, which we think is the least important, working all the way to number one, which we think is the most important thing you need to know about the game. Sometimes we sync up, sometimes we don't. I have a feeling we're going to sync up on number one this week. Something just tells me. Yeah, uh, I, I think I, I think that's very likely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but I'm going to start with number five, which is what Mike just said, is that you fail forward in this game. And what I mean by that is no matter what the result of the mission is, you still continue on. So I haven't actually lost the mission yet. Not that the game is super easy because I've heard plenty of people lose the mission. I've certainly been within death's grasp a couple times. You don't actually lose when your character dies. You have till the next enemy phase. So if they attack during the enemy phase and that character will be removed from the board, but you have until the next enemy phase to try to complete the mission Or when you get defeated, you also have a chance to make a last stand and bring yourself back. And so I've had a couple of those moments where we've had one character defeated, the other character made their last stand. But either way, when you lose, you still progress through the story. Because I've actually failed a couple missions on purpose, just kind of clicking through the app to see what happens. And what happens is you kind of have two currencies for experience in the game. One is the experience in the class that you're playing, and that'll help you level up later on. And the other one is this lore that you kind of get as a group experience, and that tells you when you get better items in the game. And every item kind of has its own number. I don't want to get into details there. But bottom line is, you will just get less lore or more lore depending on how far in you get and less and more experience in that class depending on how far in you get. So the nice part is the further you get in the mission the more lore and experience you're going to get, and that'll help you further on down the campaign. So there is a penalty for losing, but it's not replay the mission or start all over again. So that's my number five, is you get to fail forward in the game. Yeah, and it's interesting. That was, I think, my number one or number two back when we reviewed Arkham Horror, the card game, which I think is uh, one of the first games Fantasy Flight did that has this kind of always-continue-on way of doing a campaign. Yeah, so there I loved it. Here, it didn't make my list, but it's not as good for me because I have lost scenarios and I found that it didn't feel very different, like between losing a scenario and winning a scenario, like how the story played out basically felt the same. And I think that's partially, well, you know, I'll save what it's partially for because that's going into one of my items later. But yeah, I've... I still like that you fail forward and that like you're going to continue the campaign regardless, especially playing with my son, but I don't like how they did it as much here. Yeah, I tend to agree with you on that. There is no branching story arc. They say it's going to be tougher in your next mission, but it's really not. At least in the couple times I clicked through it, it didn't seem to be any different for the next mission, except you have less experience, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my number five is a bit of a mix, and that's the app integration And I'll say that overall, I tend to like app integration in games. I really enjoyed it in Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition. I thought it was okay in Imperial Assault. I liked it in Descent. 
you know, so even though those are all kind of very similar versions of the same app and this one is very similar too, I have liked them differently. Here I like parts of the app. I think it's really smooth. I think it's presented really well. They have nice narration. You know, they have nice music. So all that kind of fits what they've done with their previous games. Also, one feature that I love and I wish like every game could find a way to do You still in this game have the annoyance, I mean, not that big a deal for me, but some people hate it, of uh, having to find tiles and lay them out. But the game has this effect where they uh, they show you like where the tiles you have laid out are. And then they have kind of a fog on the screen if tiles are going to go in that direction as this scenario progresses, which is a minor thing. But I adore because I can set up the table when the scenario starts, knowing exactly which way it's going to kind of grow and making sure I have enough room for everything. A small touch, but a really appreciated one. Besides that, everything is, you know, very intuitive, very quick to do. The things that I don't like, and I think these could very much vary uh, by group. Uh, First of all, they hide stuff. And this is a thing that uh, Star Wars has done and, like, a lot of things have done. But, I don't know, it just bothered me more here. A lot of tests will tell you exactly what you need. It'll be like... Try to get two strength successes and or might successes, and if you if you get them, click pass. If you don't get them, click fail. I like that. But then sometimes they'll just be like, "Hey, test this and input how many you got." And again, Star Wars uh, Imperial Assault did that too. But here it just really bothered me because I wanted kind of mechanically to know what was going on more. And clearly, without an app, I would always know. Like the card would tell me what I needed, and uh, not having it here sometimes bothered me, especially because they would have like tests that. I would have to spend a whole nother action. And it was hard to tell from the app, like whether I'd missed a threshold. And sometimes like the actions would add up. So like if I did it another turn and you only got like one or two successes, it would still be enough, but I couldn't tell when. So I would waste actions sometimes in the game and actions are incredibly precious because I wasn't sure like if I was accomplishing something or not. So that just kind of frustrated me. And then also I just feel like you have to mess with the app a little bit too much. Like, I don't mind that the expiration and stuff is handled through the app and all the narration, of course, and, like, the flavor text. That's all fine. I don't love that combat's handled in the app. I I didn't really like it in Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition either. But the weird thing is that you need it even less in this one. Like, Mansions of Madness, they added all these extra bells and whistles. Like, you weren't even sure how the enemy was going to attack and, like, things would change each time you fought. Which I guess is cool from a narrative standpoint, but did mean you really needed the app because everything was different every time. But here, like, combat is always exactly the same. The enemy powers don't change. How you're attacking them doesn't change. It's all the exact same thing. You're just forced to use the app to, like, keep track of their health and and even, like, see what their stats are. Like, I have to click into them to see what they are. And as much as, you know, people might be annoyed by having a lot of cards on the table, I would find that preferable. So it's my first one. I mean, my number five. It's not a game breaker or anything. But I didn't love how the app was used, although some parts of it were really nice. All right, we're going to disagree already. I... Totally love how the app was used, but you know me. I don't like keeping track of all that stuff. Well, right, right, yeah, yeah, of course. So it's going to depend on your personality here. I know that people that don't like apps in games are certainly not going to like it here because it is used a whole lot. I agree it could be easily done with cards as far as the enemies go, but think about a game like Sword and Sorcery. They have enemies here that have modifiers on them, and they have a little title up top. You can highlight over it to see what the modifier does. But I don't have to calculate it. It's just there. I can kind of see what's going on right away, right in the app. So I know you're using the app a lot, handling the app a lot. And this goes to another point, and this wasn't one of my five points, so that's why I'm talking on a little bit about it. 
My daughter actually loved just handling the app for us. She did all the monsters. She did everything. She didn't play with us. She didn't want to. I certainly offered her. We had built her character and everything. And then she's like, "Ah, I don't really want to play. But she's reading the app to us. She's kind of clicking through everything. She's really enjoying just handling that role for us. So I do think if you have some non-gamers that kind of want to sit in and get part of the experience, they can even join in using the app as well. So I don't know. I think it's going to be a preference thing, but I really do like what the app does. Now, that's awesome. I'm glad, uh, <laughs> you know, I'd, maybe I'd get my three-year-old to play the game that way with us. And yeah, I think I came off a little bit too negative, but the, the app is fine. And I do think it's really going to be preference. For me, it like sort of made it not quite as enjoyable, but I also did like parts of it. Cool. All right. Well, my number four is variability in missions. And this is a little bit of a mix because I don't really know where it's going to go and how good it's going to be. I know Mansions of Madness kind of promised variability. You could play through the same mission multiple times and it'd be a little different. And I played through them and maybe the layout was a little bit different, but the events seem to be the same, at least early on in Mansions of Madness. I don't know where it progressed from there. We have a lot of the expansions, but I certainly haven't played a lot of them and certainly not two or three times to see how that variability played. But here, because it is a campaign, if you want to start a new campaign, you're going to have to play Mission 1 over again. And one thing I'll say is I did appreciate the amount of side quests and like little hidden treasures or gems. So if you've seen or played Mansions of Madness, you'll know that there'll be a lot of objects you can interact with laid all around the board. And it has it here too, but those are different from game to game. And so I really appreciate the little subtle hints and nuances. Now I did play Mission 2 quite a few times, and that one seems to be basically identical every time you played it. So that's why I said it's a little bit of a mixed. I think there is some variability there, but I I still think there's room for improvement, especially in a game where you're going to always have to start at the beginning and progress through the whole thing yeah that, that's interesting my number four is also focused on uh the scenario design um and also a mix but not quite for the same reason so we do have a little bit of matching here i did find decent variety i would put that on kind of the pro side of this scenario two being kind of the odd exception the only difference i found in that was which enemies spawned besides that like the map was laid out the exact same way every time but for the other scenarios when i replayed them the map was different And not only, so they did like randomize where the key things were that I had to find to like beat the mission. But what I really liked is that they completely randomized, or not completely, but to a great extent randomized like white items I could find. And there's also like these encounters you can have that get you titles and like cool little special abilities for your character. And uh, those happen very differently. Like in one game, I got this awesome thing that I didn't even encounter in the next game. And not only that, but in, like, another mission later, the character from that first thing showed up. So, like, that's really cool. I think they I think they do have, uh, I would say, better variety here than in Mansions of Madness. Because Mansions of Madness is, like, such a tight, like, kind of solve the mystery, get piece A to set off piece B. And this is a little bit more of an open-ended design. So, I yeah, I've, I've found really good variety. They have to, though, as I said, because of the campaign. I feel like they would really be up a creek if they didn't do it. Yeah, no, no, absolutely, absolutely. And I've played Mission 1 a ton of times, and I haven't minded it. Like, the gameplay is good enough that I don't really mind. On the negative, kind of a different negative, and there's been a, you know, I did a YouTube video review for this, and there's been probably a pretty lively debate about this topic over there. It doesn't feel very Lord of the Rings to me. And just to explain, I'm a huge fan of Lord of the Rings and, like, the Silmarillion and The Hobbit and all of that. 
might surprise some people since, <laughs> you know, I come down on the Arkham Horror side of the debate between Arkham Horror and Lord of the Rings, but that's just because of the gameplay. I, I certainly prefer Lord of the Rings over Arkham Horror in terms of uh, storyline and characters and that kind of stuff. But here, this... I've heard some people make this criticism, and I kind of agree with it. It feels mostly like a generic fantasy theme with some Lord of the Rings characters, like, kind of pasted onto it. Like, yes, they reference things I know about, like Mount Gundabad and and those kind of things, but in the end, you know, I'm fighting orcs and, and evil men, and I'm a generic guy with a bow, and, you know, like, I don't really... I don't know. Um, it The story did not grab me much. It felt like a fairly blah story. Like, the stuff didn't really matter that much. And that's the exact same way I felt about the Descent campaigns and the Imperial Assault campaigns. I think it's just kind of how Fantasy Flight writes these, you know, APA-led cooperative game experiences. It's not a big deal. Like, the narration is well-written. I can still get into it. My son still enjoyed it. But it definitely didn't feel like Lord of the Rings, and it didn't feel, like, very epic or important in terms of what I was doing. It just felt like I was fighting some random dudes in, like, random fields without much kind of uh, feeling of uniqueness there. Yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. I've certainly watched all the Lord of the Rings movies, all the Hobbit movies. I've read, you know, all four of the books. I have not read any of the fanfics or any of the other outside of the box type stuff. But I certainly do like fantasy in general and certainly Lord of the Rings. But I agree, nothing feels Lord of the Ringsy about it. And the one thing I'll add to that is it bothers me that you get to play the main heroes in this game. Yeah, I agree. It bothers me that Bilbo is playing with Gimli like... Well before the Fellowship happens. Well, I mean, t- time-wise, it's fine. I will say that. Like, they're not doing anything wrong because um, they're setting it, you know, after The Hobbit. So this is when Bilbo was supposed to be, like, actively having other adventures with, like, his elf friends and that kind of thing. And Legolas is super old. That's fine. Aragorn is a dude and a dime. He's, uh, I feel like he's 80 or 90 years old in Lord of the Rings, and he lives to be, like, over 100 because they're just long-lived people. And Gimli is, like, an a, a oldest dwarf. So, I mean, all of that is okay if that's the only thing that bothers you. Well, it's not their ages that bother me. It bothers me that they're, like, fast friends doing these, you know, well, yes. maybe two-person <laughs> adventures together. And then Lord of the Rings comes along, and it's like, yeah, they kind of know each other. But it's not like they're, like, best friends. And you look at the relationship between Gimli and Legolas, which, by the way, a lot of people are going to pick that combination to play. Oh, that's a really good point. Like, why are they? Yeah, why are they not getting along at the beginning of Lord of the Rings if they've had many adventures together? <laughs> yeah, is this like two person pair like running around doing all this cool stuff? The thing that bothers me is that you're that it is somewhat generic, and they could have been anybody. You know, it could have been another cool bow wielding elf. Well, and and that's what they did. I don't know if you remember in Middle Earth Quest. That's exactly what they did. Like they had. A writer of Rohan that was clearly inspired by, like, Theoden and Aomer and all those guys, but it wasn't them. And they had a dwarf fighter, but it wasn't Gimli. <laughs> you know, like, they just did the generic version, like a new character, but the same basic archetype. And don't get me wrong. I mean, you'll hear in my final thoughts. It's not going to take away from my enjoyment of the game. But it does kind of... I was just like, why did they do that? It doesn't make sense to me. Beside the fact that, you know, obviously, if you know you can play those characters, I think more people will be interested in the game. And they didn't want to chintz out in the base box. So, I mean, you do get all the characters you would want. Well, probably not really all of them, but a lot of them. Well, they got to save Gandalf and... You know, your other favorite characters for future expansions. Oh, man, I can't imagine them making Gandalf a playable character. He would be <laughs> ridiculous compared to everybody else. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, anyway, we've gone off on a lot of a tangent, but that is your number four, which is variability as well. All right, so let's get to my number three, which is your health system and the last stand. So this game uses a health system very similar to Mansions of Madness, as we described. There are two types of damage in the game, and I love how they describe it as damage. There is the damage damage, and there is the fear damage. And I don't know why they call it damage damage. It's kind of silly in a game that's not silly, so I don't know why they did that. What, instead of like wounds or something? Yeah, they could have called it anything else. I mean, they just didn't have to call everything damage. They could have said, this is your damage, and this is your fear. Oh, yeah, yeah, I gotcha. Like, they didn't have to call it damage damage. Like, I mean, they almost, like, did that tongue-in-cheek, it feels like. But it's interesting, because in Mansions of Madness, everybody has, like, six or seven health and, like, six or seven sanity. But, I mean, they work basically the same. You draw a card as you get damaged. You flip it face up most of the time, unless it says to take it face down, resolve what's on the back, and then you put it in front of you. And once you collect a certain amount of wounds or fear, then you have to make this last stand check here, which starts pretty easy. So the first time, it'll tell you what skill to test, and you need to get one success. If you happen to die again, you now have to get two successes, and then three successes, and then four successes. So the more times you have to make this last stand check, the more likely it is that you will be knocked out of the game completely. Now, the first time, you are actually pretty likely to make it, because if you fail the test, because every time you get damaged, you get to take a test to see if you can prevent some of those wounds. So a lot of times, you would have failed a lot of those, if you are to the point where you're taking a last stand test. So you probably have some successes coming up. The only caveat to that is if you don't save any of those inspiration tokens, then you might be in a little bit of trouble. But certainly the first time, you could pass it pretty easily, and it basically says discard all your stuff and and keep going in the game. And so I like how this system works a lot. There were several times where we've gotten to last stands and, you know, we had this stand-up moment where it's like, yes, we get to keep going. And again, even if you don't, you fail forward, so it's not that big of a deal. I also like the flipping cards. They've done this before. I I mean, I don't think it's true, but I'm going to say they stole it from us in Salvation Road where you get the health health tokens that you flip over so you can see, like, what the result is. You know all those Fantasy Flight execs were playing Salvation Road every day. Yes. So, I mean, I do think it's funny that we came up with that system and then Fantasy Flight has been using it for a lot of their games since. I I love the system where, and and there isn't a lot of reading on them because if there was, it would be annoying, especially if you take like three or four wounds at a time. Now you got to read a bunch of stuff. A lot of them will just say flip it face down. It's a normal wound, but some of them will do extra special stuff. And of course, if they're face up, they're more dangerous. I don't wonder where they got that from. (coughs) Salvation Road. Um, But, uh, no, I do like how that system works. And uh, so that's my number three is the health system and the last stand system. I really like how it works, although I will say it's a little bit scary playing as characters like Bilbo because you only have three life. And I'll tell you, the boss does four damage sometimes. So, I mean, it's pretty hard to stay alive with some of these uh, wimpier characters. Yeah, you definitely got to be hidden with Bilbo to survive those attacks. Um, this one didn't make my list, but just to comment briefly, it's kind of a con for me. I don't really like it. I liked it better in Mansions of Madness for two reasons. Number one, I think thematically it's stupid to have a fear kind of level that can defeat your characters. Mansions of Madness, you know, in Lovecraft in general, the idea of characters going insane, totally within, like, the mythos and kind of the theme. 
But the idea of like characters being defeated because they're too afraid, like heroic characters from Lord of the Rings, give me a break. That that never happens. <laughs> you Come know? on, Legolas, man. He's he's scared. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's yeah. I, I don't know. I, I found that very frustrating. Well, we know what happens in Star Wars because it certainly happened to Yoda. He like ran away to a planet. So we know it can happen to heroic characters. Man, be quiet. That's not what happened at all. <laughs> but um, the hobbits were like fighting orcs and goblins, like no problem, like throwing rocks at them and stuff. Like friggin' Nazgul came and and, he, and I guess they were kind of frozen in fear of them. But even then, they still did stuff like they, you know, Frodo charge him with a knife. Like, yeah, the, the idea that you're being defeated by fear, it's stupid. I, I would much rather them just had one kind of health statistic with like a little bit higher health. And just left it at that. I don't really see much need for the uh, the division. Besides that it was already in Mansions of Madness. Now let me ask you though. Have you ever been defeated by fear? No. I have only been f- defeated by uh, damage. Yeah. I don't think it comes into play. I mean. Well then. I mean. Isn't that even, is that even stupider? <laughs> well. There are some cool effects on the fear cards though. And, and that's what I kind of like about it. I don't think. I think the damage ones seem to have less effects. And, and maybe I'm just. You know, seeing no, this I, I, I do think you're right about that. I just wish that then it would never defeat you. I wish they were just negative effects. You know, like I'd be okay with that. Yeah, like they make you do crazy stuff, like try to loot stuff from your colleagues. They make you like attack your colleagues. So I do think it's kind of neat to have those fear effects that make you kind of do crazy stuff. Although that again, that's Arkham Horror. That's not Lord of the Rings. You know what I mean? Like, like Bilbo never never got so afraid that he punched Thorin. You know, like I, I don't know. I, I I have a big problem with it thematically. And the other thing is, you've never had a character die. I've had a character die. And, I'll, and in the most unsatisfying way possible, I failed my first last stand because those checks are never guaranteed. And this one was a, uh, it was a check for one success, yes, but in my worst statistic where I only got to draw one card. So there was very little chance of me passing it anyway. And not only did I fail, but as Peter said, uh, when you die, you uh, only actually lose in the next enemy phase. So if you die during the enemy phase, you get a whole nother turn for the remaining characters. I died during the character's action from like a random event before I even reached the enemy phase. So literally he died and then immediately lost the mission with no chance to do anything with my other characters. So I don't like the last dance system. I think it's too swingy in terms of what happens. And that being like the entire determination of whether my character is alive or dead, very unsatisfying. Now, it happens so un- infrequently. I think I've only died twice in all the games I've played that, I, I, you know, again, it didn't make my list, but it's definitely uh, left a sour taste in my mouth when that happened. You know, I like us not playing these games together. We disagree on a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's tough to make happen, but this is uh, yeah, two in a row where we haven't played with each other as much. And when we can make it work out, I think it's good. All right, and uh, going to my number three, which is uh, my only full con on the list, although as you can hear, there are some cons that didn't make my uh, top five list, and that's uh, the character progression in the game. Now, it's not like a strong, strong con. I do see some positives, but overall, I don't like... It's kind of the Gloomhaven problem. I feel like my characters progress too slowly in this game and not in a fully satisfying way. So there's three main ways characters can progress. Uh, Peter mentioned these. With experience, you can buy new cards for your skill deck. You aren't clearing out old cards. You're just adding the new cards. Except that when, when I say you aren't clearing out old cards, I mean you can't get rid of like your base cards. But you can basically sell back cards you've already leveled up to get more experience to get better cards. I do like that. The problem is that, first of all, you're generally only getting three to four experience per mission, which is enough to get one basic card or save up for a better card. So you might add one card to your deck after each mission. But... 
with the way these uh, cards come out, I mentioned that at the beginning of the turn, you get to draw two cards and prepare one of them. But then you shuffle your deck at the beginning of every turn before you do that. So I've had games where I bought an awesome card and never saw it. Like many games like that. So uh, it's the same problem that Arkham Horror had before they added the permanent cards, where like you're leveling up a card into your deck, but it's one card out of so many cards, and you just might never see it. But here it's even worse because you shuffle every time, at least in Arkham, like you have to go through your deck and you're going to see that card eventually, theoretically. So I didn't really like that. I didn't really find that satisfying. Also, the weaker cards you add don't have successes on them. So until you're adding the 12 experience point cards, you're actually making your deck less likely to succeed. So again, if you don't get lucky enough to draw that card for its cool power, you're like making your deck worse by leveling up. That didn't feel very satisfying, I think, uh, for obvious reasons. And then the only other like major way you level up is with items. But I found that very underwhelming. It happens very infrequently. I think every... Uh, Three or four missions, you get like a big level up in all your items, but until then, nothing is changing about your items unless you find one. And um, the level ups are not very great. It's like you might do plus one damage, or you might gain that you can stun the guy, or you know the the item that you could use two times now you can use three times. So you know I understand across across a twelve mission campaign, you can't like drastically change things after every mission. But at the same point, maybe they shouldn't have had a twelve mission campaign. Maybe they should have shortened it because I did not feel like. My character changed in a cool way from mission to mission. I felt like it was pretty static. All right. Well, once again, we are on the opposite page because I actually had as my number two cool leveling system. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Go ahead. Now, I agree with you that it's slow. That is the one thing I put as like a, a minor caveat to it. But I love how you can level up something and then trade it out on the next mission if you want. I love how you can level up something if... Now, there are classes. We didn't really cover this. There are a bunch of different classes in the game. So I love how you can start off as a thief, upgrade a skill in the thief, you keep that card in your deck, and then change over to a hunter or something else where you're more likely to do damage. And now you've permanently got this thief card in your deck that helps you hide later on down the mission. I love how your weapons upgrade, and it's not a linear upgrade either like a dagger can become two or three different types of daggers so i like how there are a lot of options when you're upgrading and leveling and i do feel like you level between missions and the difference between this and gloomhaven to me and i agree with you that you're only leveling one thing similar to gloomhaven first of all gloomhaven i didn't even level after each mission that's true (laughs) gloomhaven missions were also three plus hours sometimes you know between setup and everything else these seemed much longer with this you just throw it on the table and start the app and you're ready to go and missions typically don't take more than an hour an hour and a half so while yes you're leveling up slowly I enjoy the leveling up, and I think that the missions are fast enough that it doesn't matter. Now, it's interesting you say you don't often, or there are sometimes where you don't see those cards. I haven't had that experience. You do a lot of tests in this game. I mean, certainly there'll be turns where you're not, but then you shuffle up the cards and you get to look at two or three of them, depending on which character you're using. You know, each turn at the beginning, you put some on the bottom, you put some in your, you know, face up in front of you. So the odds of not getting them are not very likely throughout the course of an entire mission. I mean, maybe on the short battle map ones, and that's the other thing we didn't talk about. The battle maps are typically much shorter than the adventure map missions. And so, so far through what I've played, every other mission's battle map, overland map, battle map, overland map. They change that up a little bit and at some points, but yeah. Although I'm going to disagree on the probability. The, the fact that you're taking more or fewer tests has no effect on whether or not you get the card that you leveled up. 
because you shuffle the whole deck and then you draw two cards. It doesn't matter how many tests you did. Oh, you're talking about getting in your hand. Well, yeah, because that's all that matters. Like, the cool card is not a cool card unless I get it in my hand to prepare it. It's just a card with no success on it, <laughs> when I'm talking about the three experience cards, at least. That's true, that's true. I guess I also used Aragorn a lot, who's a captain who lets you look at more cards, and some of his yes. cards have search abilities on them. Yeah, that, that, that certainly helps. Which, yeah, which means halfway through the mission, you get to search as well. Now, I have played a campaign without him as well, but, um, yeah, I guess I just didn't notice it as much. But I like the fact that you get titles, as you said. You know, there are random side quests, basically, that pop up in these missions, and you get titles from it. Those are also cards that go into your deck. Now, again, like Mike said, a lot of times they don't have successes on them, so they are clogging up your deck a little bit. But, you know, I I like that trade-off. For me, and I mean, you and I disagree with this sometimes, even in our design, you know, when we're working on designs together— I like things that have a trade-off, that have a penalty to them, that they're not just good all the time. Like, this card is really good if you get it, and it makes you make a decision. When I have four experience or three experience, do I want to add this card to my deck? Maybe I don't want to add it to my deck. And I know the counter-argument to that is, well, then you're not leveling your deck at all, so who cares? Well, right. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, like, I like choices and hard decisions, but not when I'm leveling up. (laughs) Well, see, for me, I do. Well, sorry. I mean, it's fine to have a choice when you're leveling up, but I don't want the choice to be, do I level up or do I just sit on my experience that's not fun yeah and again that's I mean I'm probably crazy in this because I'm probably the only one that feels this way but you know I I like those choices when leveling up I like thinking should I add this card to my deck or not because the first time I played through the campaign I didn't add the card to my deck um, because I didn't want the extra blank card in in my deck so I don't know I, I really like the leveling system I think it's cool that you're not only getting new skills but you're getting new items and you're getting titles added to your deck. I just like the way they do it, although I agree that it's a little slow. Yeah. All right. Um, my number two touches on some things you've mentioned, but that's uh, the character variety and the role variety and just kind of like how different your deck can look. So Peter had mentioned the different roles, like you would be a burglar and you can switch to be a hunter. I love those. I love that you can kind of multi-class, kind of hearkening back to old D&D games I used to play. Like, I can get a bunch of burglar skills and then become, like, a hunter later. Um, I guess that is kind of part of character progression, so maybe that makes it less of a con. But I put it in here because it fit with the character thing I was talking about. And then I really love, although, yes, there are some weird thematic things with, like, having it be Legolas and be Bilbo. And they could have made it more generic and I wouldn't have minded. But I love how different the characters feel. And when I played uh, new characters in a different campaign, even though the missions were, you know, some different and some kind of similar, I still really felt like I was doing different stuff. Like Bilbo has to play very differently than, uh, than Aragorn. And even a different combination of roles with Bilbo plays very differently. Because if he's a burglar, he gets this one card that makes him succeed more often when he's far away from everybody else. If uh, you're playing as a guardian, you have all these cards that want you to be close to other players so you can boost them. So, like, the combination and the mixing and matching you can do of, uh, of your character, the actual, like, person you're playing, and the role you have really leads to a lot of fun variety. Uh, gives the game, I think, great replayability, even with the same campaign. And clearly, Fantasy Flight's already announced one expansion, uh, just a in-app expansion. So I think there's going to be a lot of replayability here. And I love playing the different characters. I I love how much the experience changes and the tactics change based on who I'm controlling. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's not on my list, but I mean, you summed it up very well. All right, so let's see if your number one is my number one. 
Yeah, I'm sure it is. It's the card combat in the game or the card action resolution. Wait, I was going to say the the well, well for me, well you, you talk about what hit you the best for you cuz mine is similar. We we are definitely close to each other. As we've said many times, this game is very similar to Mansions of Madness. I mean, you have two actions. Every time you move, you move two spaces. You can interact with items using the app. You can attack things on the board. I mean, all those are very, very similar to Mansions of Madness. In fact, that's one reason I thought I wasn't going to like the game. Because while I like Mansions of Madness, I didn't need another Mansions of Madness. And I typically tend to prefer dice combat resolutions or combat... I keep saying combat, but it's not combat. Just dice action resolutions better than I like card ones, but it is amazing to me how different it feels to be able to manipulate your deck, to be able to decide whether you want to put cards in front of you, because they're smart about how they do it. The best cards you can take are typically the ones with successes on them. So if you put them in front of you, you're taking them out of your deck, you're culling your deck as it were, but successes are going to have a better action on it. So they're actually encouraging you to do that. Whereas if it's got no success on it, it's typically got a weaker action on it, but you get to call your deck because of it. So for me, it's just a neat decision, turn by turn decisions, what you do with your cards. It's not overly complicated. People know that have heard me enough that I hate reading a hundred things on cards. Well, a lot of times when you scout, you really only take one of those cards, and it's typically like two or three cards you're looking at. And then you put them on top or bottom based on whether they have successes or not, and you have one that you put in front of you. Throughout the course of gameplay, you're not reading those cards. All you have to look at is the successes or not in the corner. So I really like that. I really like how they have the inspiration mechanic. And, you know, those inspiration tokens are valuable. And I know you talked about earlier how... Sometimes you don't know how many successes you need. And while I agree that it could be a little bit frustrating, at the same time, I feel that it's kind of neat because you wouldn't know what you'd need to do to succeed. And I mean, if you've played these games enough times, you know, two is typically a success. Sometimes you need three or four. And I agree you might need extra actions to do it. But if you hadn't got those successes, then you wouldn't have gotten it anyway. And it makes inspiration a valuable asset. And it's not like you're getting inspiration hand over fist that you have a million of it. So you really have to decide when you want to use it. Do I want to save it in case I do get to one of those last stand checks? Or do I want to save it in case I need that extra success in combat? Maybe I don't use it here and risk having to use an extra action. So I don't know. I really just like how they do the card system. I didn't think it would feel different than Mansions of Madness. But to me, it actually feels very different. And that'll I'll get into that in my final thoughts more, but... I really liked how they did that card resolution system. Yeah, I, I very much agree. This is my number one and, and really catapults the game higher than it might seem based on my kind of mixed list otherwise. For me, the biggest thing is the preparation. And you talked about this, the hard choice of do I put the card with a success into my like prepared area where I can't draw it for my test this turn? Or do I let it like sit on top of my deck and give me a guaranteed uh, success for this check? Uh, I like you have these weakness cards in your deck that do nothing, and I would often put those in front of me, even though I can only have four cards prepared, just to take out a nothing card from my deck for uh, the foreseeable future. So I think it leads to great turn-to-turn choices, just like you said. I love that a very small number, but a decent number of cards give you permanent abilities as long as they're sitting up there, like permanent bonuses that really make your character feel more unique and kind of change how they deal with tests and those kind of things. 
So I, I like that, and a lot of like the highest level cards do that. I love the the resource management of inspiration tokens, how you can mitigate your luck. I don't think it's quite as good as what the Sadler brothers are doing with like Brook City and uh, Alter Quest from our previous episode, where um, you get them all the time. Like inspiration tokens can be pr- fairly rare, so you don't always have the chance to mitigate and make those choices. But I, I, yeah, I like all of that. I think it's well, yeah. Again, final thoughts because <laughs> I'm going to kind of do a Mansions of Madness comparison in my final thoughts as well. So I'll just leave it there. Go for it. So even though I have you know two mix a con and then two pros at the top of my list. I think this game is awesome. I've really been enjoying it. I'm like jealous that Peter has our copy right now and that I can't play it. Uh, my son loved it, has been requesting it. I think it's like so much fun. I think the the dealing with your hand and stuff and trying to beat the missions and uh, all that stuff is great. You know, it doesn't bother me. And sometimes it's kind of fun that I'm Bilbo. I, I know there are some issues there, but I, I don't really care that much. The scenarios aren't amazing. The story doesn't really grab me that much, but the gameplay is so good. And that's the big thing. I was not that high on Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition. Peter said several times that it plays like you're playing a movie, and I don't want to play a movie. You know, I'll watch a movie. I want to play a game, and this is a game. Like, the mechanics are interesting. The choices on every single turn with your card management and your resource management are interesting. So, this is... uh, Yeah, I think a step in the right direction for Fantasy Flight in terms of narrative game experiences and campaign game experiences, but where the choices are interesting. And really, it's the exact same thing with Arkham Horror, the card game. Like, I feel like playing my cards and managing my hand and sort of the the less thematic, like, gaminess of it, that's why I play games. I want to have those cool choices and those thoughtful tactical decisions, and this game has that in spades. But in a really streamlined way, like I, you know, Peter said it's an hour to an hour and a half. When I'm playing solo, I can crank out these missions in like 45 minutes. It's really quick. And again, compared to Mansions of Madness, second edition, where it's, <laughs> in my experience, like two to four hours for even some of the shorter scenarios. So I, I think this one is fabulous. I think if you have any interest in the theme or just uh, you don't mind app-based games, you want to have a fun adventure game to play, I would definitely check this out. It, unfortunately, is pretty expensive, I think it's $100 MSRP, and I don't think you're getting nearly $100 worth of content. But um, if they keep on releasing app-only expansions where you don't need to buy a physical product, and, you know, I'm hoping those will be like $10 max, maybe it'll be more, though. Uh, If they do that, I think it'll eventually be like the right amount of material for what you're paying. But definitely right now, just know you're... You're paying for the future here. I don't think you're you're really getting your money's worth fully. Yeah, and I'm just going to add on to the end of that because I agree with a lot of your points. I think I was a lot more positive on the game. I mean, I had such low expectations going in because I was like, oh, it's just Mansions of Madness all over again. But it's not, and it doesn't feel like it at all, even though literally you're doing the exact same thing. Yeah, I was going to say, like, it is almost the exact same thing, but it feels so much different. It's amazing to me how they did that because, you know, it, it just tells me how one little mechanic can change things, you know, I mean, Mansions of Madness, all you're doing differently is rolling dice instead of flipping cards, but it just feels so different. And I typically enjoy rolling dice. So I don't, I don't know why this feels so good. I think it's because the amount of deck manipulation you have, and certainly some characters have it more than others. So I really just, I adore this game. I think it's going to be really hard for any game to beat it out believe it or not it's so early in the year but i think it's going to be hard for any game to beat it out for my game of the year this year this is certainly an early front runner man i i I don't know i mean anyone listening to the last episode knows how excited i am for ultra quest but 
that game, if the mechanics work out the way I hope they do, I think that will beat uh, this for me. Well, that's not coming out this year, though. Yeah, you know, that's, that's an interesting point. Like, if, if I do an early review of a game and I play, like, a demo, could that be on the year-end list, or does it have to be... Well, I guess we wouldn't do a full episode on it if we hadn't actually played the retail release, right? Yeah, I mean, if we haven't played the final version of the game, then we're not going to... Yeah, yeah, you're right. Okay, so... So never mind. Uh, I guess I don't know what my game of the year will be. This this is definitely a contender then. So I mean, bottom line is I really love this game. Now I will say that Fantasy Flight and Asmo Day North America did send us this as a review copy, but I was fully planning on spending the hundred dollars on it. And when Mike said he was thinking about keeping the game, I was actually thinking about going out and buying a second copy which is stupid i know because you know we can obviously pass it back and forth and we don't need it at the same time but that's how much i enjoyed the game that i didn't want to not have it around and not have the options i will say that a hundred dollars is steep but when you're looking at i don't know how much they're going to be five or ten dollars for an in-app expansion which is there's a lot of work that goes into making these campaigns. I can tell you right now, as we're working on spare parts more and more, there's a lot of work that goes into each mission, like hours and hours of work. And for the what I would imagine being minimal cost that it's going to be to purchase whole other campaigns, I think it's going to be well worth it for you to buy this if you are at all interested in anything we've said today. So... For me, it's a, a hearty recommend. You don't even have to try it before you buy it. I, I really do think. And, and here's the other thing I like above and beyond Mansions of Madness. I think because the theme is more accessible, I think it's easier to get more people into the game as well. I can play this with my kids. I'm not playing Mansions of Madness with my kids. They've also streamlined the mechanics to the point where you only have three options for actions on your turn. You're literally going to move, you're going to interact, or you're going to fight. They had other actions in Mansions of Madness, which may have added some depth, quote-unquote, but I actually feel there are more strategic choices here and, and in a streamlined manner. So I do think that this is easier to get people into gaming as their first game as well. So I think this game does it really well on a lot of fronts. All right. Well, this has uh, been a longer review than usual, but again, we had some strong disagreements, even though we both really liked the game. So uh, let's get into our design discussion. Maybe we'll keep it a little bit shorter just to keep the episode in control. We're going to talk about different ways of resolving tests. Uh, here we've got a card-based resolution, but not just card-based, but a kind of uh, changeable card-based resolution because you can take cards out of the deck and kind of call to change your probability. A lot of games have dice. Clearly, like the original Arkham Horror just had, you know, get a five or a six as a success, and that's a pretty popular way to do things. Uh, Arkham Horror Card Game has drawing tokens from a bag. So, uh, Peter, if you had to, like, kind of think, uh, what's your favorite? You were saying how much you liked dice. Do you think dice is kind of your preferred way in general to resolve tests in a game and kind of figure out whether you succeed or fail at something? Well, I used to think that. And I'm not so sure that I don't still think that. And the reason for it is because it's so quick and streamlined and easy to do, especially if you have, you know, customized dice with hit markers on it. You just roll a certain number of dice and you can see how many successes you have in front of you. It lets you play with the variability a little bit. You can do things. Now, I think cards, like you said, do give you the option of adding cards to the deck, calling cards out of the deck to kind of mess with the probability. And Gloomhaven does that as well. Like you can get cursed in the middle of a mission. 
But those decks were so big that, you know, I don't know that it made that much of a difference to have an extra curse. It certainly felt like it, though, when that, that extra curse came up. I do like the way that cards give you a little bit of an opportunity to mess with probabilities, but you can certainly do that with dice, too. And we do that with some of our upcoming designs as well, where... Maybe a success sometimes isn't always a success. I'll take spare parts as the example. You know, we have a a hit that also pierces symbol, which is always going to be a hit, but we can mess with that and change that to just a piercing symbol, meaning that that hit no longer applies to that one side of the dice. So there are certainly opportunities to do that with dice, but I think it's easier with cards to just add or subtract a card and, you know, mess with that probability. And I think the other thing I like that Lord of the Rings does here is each deck can be completely different. So if I want Bilbo to succeed more, I give him more successes on his original cards. You know, so I can make his cards weaker in general and his actions weaker and then give him more successes throughout the course of the game. So I do like how you can mess around with that a little bit too with cards. Yeah, I agree with all of that. But I want to talk kind of first about the emotional experience and this is a very personal thing i think some gamers will have the exact opposite for me dice do win out in terms of excitement when i'm playing a game and resolving a test i feel more tense when i'm like getting the dice ready and you know i'm one of the people that kind of like rolls dice in my hands for a moment before i throw them onto the table i uh, like seeing that result the gasps the cheers all that kind of stuff i find that happens more with dice for whatever reason, and again, that's just me and maybe the groups I play with. Whereas flipping a card, I guess, can be exciting. And flipping, like, several cards and looking for icons, that can be fun. But I don't think it quite reaches, like, the same visceral level for me. And I also feel like it's it's totally illogical, but it definitely is something I feel. I feel like when I fail with, like, cards, I had less control of it. And I'm more frustrated sometimes. And with dice, it's like I rolled those dice, so... I I made that result happen more or less. You know, it's just absurd. And clearly I've had games where I'm frustrated because the dice just weren't, like, going my way. But, yeah, I, I don't know why. I just feel like uh, cards can frustrate me sometimes. And also, um, a small thing to note. Now, this is not how uh, Lord of the Rings does it. Well, I guess it kind of does. Actually, yeah, let me take that back. But it's not like how Arkham Horror, the card game, does it, for example. But some of these games with decks, like, you go through the entire deck... Now, Gloomhaven has a thing where you shuffle when you get a certain card, or several cards, and, uh, you know, Middle-Earth... Actually, Journeys of Middle-Earth doesn't have this. You can go through your whole deck. But I don't always love kind of the inevitability of a depleted card draw system. Like, I know I don't have any successes left, so, like, just my next couple of actions are just going to automatically be failures, and there's nothing I can do about it. I don't love that, whereas... But, but again, that's not really key to uh, cards or tokens or dice. That's just uh, how you're doing the cards or the uh, the tokens. If you shuffle the cards up every time, then it's basically identical to dice with a kind of set probability that you're working with. But yeah, just emotionally, for whatever reason, personally, I like dice more than either kind of token or card-based resolution. I find it more exciting and less frustrating in general. But I don't have any good kind of logical reason for that. It's just me. Well, let me ask you this. When you draw the cards, do you draw them all at once or do you draw them one at a time? I draw them all at once and kind of fan them out of my hand and see how many successes or, uh, you know, failure things I have. 
Yeah, I do the same thing, except when I'm doing it, especially with the kids, like I'll flip it over kind of slowly, like, oh, what's going to happen here? Okay. I mean, I could, that would certainly slow the game down, but I can see that being fun. Yeah, yeah. I treat it kind of like that stand-up die, die roll moment uh, each time I flip over the cards. Or sometimes I'll peek at them myself. You know, that's one thing you can do with cards that is harder to do with dice. You could certainly hide them with your hands, but, you know, I'll peek at them myself and I'll go, ooh, I don't know. And then I'll flip them up and like, yay, or oh. <laughs> so... I I think you can have those moments with cards. The one thing I like about cards, and we just talked about it a little bit, and you said it was a negative for you, but I like the inevitability of successes. Like I was saying earlier, they can make death more prominent in this game. They can make taking wounds more common and having lower life totals because they know if you've just failed four things in a row, you are likely to succeed your next one. Where if it was a dice roll, I think they would have a harder time using the same kind of a system. It is hard in games like this, and I agree, you are shuffling between rounds, so it is you know mitigated by that a little bit, but then they let you also look at the top couple cards each round, so you do get to stack your deck a little bit in your favor. But it is harder to fail all night with a card-based system. Sure. Whereas in a dice-based system, if you're rolling bad, I've had days where it's just like, you know, Yahtzee, I just keep rolling ones. So, I mean, that can certainly happen. So I do like the inevitability of card, and let's kind of be more inclusive here, chit systems as well. So chit systems like they have in Arkham Horror LCG where you're pulling chits from a bag, it's the same thing. You can mess with the probability of bags, well, in that game, they actually go back in the bag. So yeah, yeah, that, that that one is more like dice. Like, you can literally draw the same thing over and over again. And I don't know why you do that. I mean, except to be able to mess with the probability more. But for me, the benefit of card and chip-based systems is that you can get more deviation toward the mean. So I don't know why you'd put it back in. Not only that, it's an extra step. It takes extra time. Especially if you have to put it back in before you draw again and you're drawing two or three tokens in a row. Uh, yeah, I don't get that. I don't, I don't know why you do that. If you're doing that, just use dice, in my opinion. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, to get back to Journey to Middle Earth, I've had turns where, like, I did kind of an inconsequential test at the beginning of my turn. And I drew, like, all of my success icons <laughs> on that test. And I guess, like, tactically it's interesting that now I know my entire turn is going to be terrible. But, like... In terms of the morale of the player, it's like, oh, well, all right, guess I'm going to be sucking it up for the rest of this turn. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I think I might, as much as I can see the benefits in design of something like uh, Journeys in Middle-Earth, where you keep things out, because it is kind of a different discussion, you know. I, of course, you can't do it with dice, but uh, the idea of like whether things are kept out or are you know returned to keep the probability the same... I think I do kind of prefer probability staying the same, like in Arkham Horror or in uh, dice-based games, because, I, I don't know, I, I like the run of good luck, and even the run of bad luck can be entertaining and make a story, like, out of a game session. I think uh, too much, you know, kind of uh, coming to the middle, too much of that mean result, especially since uh, these kind of things are often in Ameritrash games that we're talking about, like dice or card-based resolution, I think it could make it maybe a little bit dull and take away the, the sort of spark of the game. Yeah, and I mean, not for me. Like, what you were saying, and maybe this is just my Euro nature coming out a little bit, but when you were saying, oh, I got all my successes on that first test, 
I say, great, I know I'm not going to do any more tests this turn, and I know I'll reshuffle at the beginning of my next turn, and I'll be fine. So, I mean, maybe it helps inform my combat decisions later in the turn, and I know that might not be thematic, but for me, that's where it becomes more of a game than Mansions of Madness, where, again, you're just kind of playing out the luck. Well, I may as well try to do this and, and, you know, fail or whatever else. Like, this is, to me, where your decision-making and your your knowledge of what is actually going on is kind of beneficial. And I don't know how to justify it thematically. I can't, but I know it felt better to me. And the one thing I'll say is I usually say dice resolutions faster, but I don't know that that's true with this game specifically, with Journeys in Middle-Earth, because all you care about is the icons. Yes, sometimes, you know, you flip over a card and there'll be text on it, And I don't like that as much. I like it here where you're just basically looking for success or failure icons because it does seem like you can do it pretty quickly. All right, draw three cards, see what you got. Yeah, and I do want to say, like, on the side of kind of controllable chits and cards, I love in Journey to Middle-Earth how I can mess with the probability. I I like games that let you mess with the probability anyway, even when it is dice-based. Like, you know, if I'm... uh, if I attack you when you're in the woods, I have uh, a lower chance of hitting you than if I attack you on the field. Like, I still see that as kind of a way of modifying my own probability of my result. And I like those kind of tactical decisions. In Journey to Middle-Earth, instead of doing it that way, they do it, you know, with me actually making a choice to keep this card in my deck and to take that card out. And I find that just as engaging and intriguing. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I see benefits to cards and tokens. I wouldn't do it just to do it. Like, would you agree that dice are kind of the default if you're going to have a default? Absolutely. I would say, unless you think you can do it right, the way Journeys of Middle-Earth does, there are a lot of games, and this is why I think I prefer dice. I've seen more games where dice do it right than games where dice do it wrong, and I can't say that that's true for the card-based combat and the chit pull. I mean, I'm going to put those two together because they're very similar in the fact that you are messing, you know, you can mess with the probability, you can take things out, or you can put them back in. I think they're very similar in their, what they can do, their pros and cons for for cards and chits. So I'm going to compare those to dice, which every time you roll it, it's a new result. By the way, there is a fourth option we should talk about, which is uh, like no randomized resolution at all. I put that one down, too. And oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, like, uh, Naroshima Hex is a game that I enjoy, and that has combat where it's just basically automatic, and you know what all the numbers are, and you see how everything's going to go, and you know who's going to get destroyed. I think some games that are very deterministic and add dice, it actually makes the game worse for me. Big example is uh, Legends of Andor. Probably one of my biggest issues with that series, which uh, we did a podcast episode on recently, and also I did a video review of uh, the the third game in the trilogy. I really don't like the dice-based combat there. The rest of the game is so deterministic and so, like, action-point economy, I would much, much rather it be like that, you know, like it's an automatic thing, or depending on how you do it, you have to spend more or fewer resources. Or even if you roll to die, and that determined how many, like, of your willpower points you had to spend, but you automatically defeated the guy. I hate in that game, which is such a, like, tight you know, Euro-ish kind of design that these dumb die rolls that come up randomly can, like, completely make me fail. So, yeah, I think some games very much lend themselves to not having a random resolution, and you shouldn't just automatically use dice because you think you have to. 
Yeah, well, I think some games that really do it are abstract games. Games like chess, obviously, there's no combat resolution. When my knight jumps on your pawn, like, I don't know if <laughs> roll, roll 2d12. His armor is 3. If you fail, you die instead. <laughs> right, yeah. So, I mean, certainly abstract games have been doing it for a long time, so it's not like this is as uncommon as we think. So another example I was thinking of is Pandemic vs. Defenders of the Realm. Those games are very similar in a lot of ways, but... Defenders of the Realm has a dice action resolution, or in that game, combat resolution. And Pandemic, you just remove cubes as you want. There are head-to-head comparisons, which are very similar. And I think some people are going to like one, and some people are going to like another. Yeah, and that's, that's another example of a game where I prefer the version without the dice. Both because I think Pandemic is a lot faster, but that's... I mean, there's, there's a lot of going on in Defenders of the Realm that makes it a longer game experience. But also, I think the core mechanics are built on kind of a Euro framework and an action point framework, and I don't need to bring dice into that. We haven't reviewed it yet, but even a Pandemic Fall of Rome, I didn't really love the dice-based combat. I found Pandemic Iberia very similar to Fall of Rome in a lot of its mechanics, and I think I prefer Iberia partially because I don't need the dice in that kind of game. I like dice games, and I don't need them there. Well, I will say I haven't played Fall Rome, but I did play Iberia, and I don't know when or if we're ever going to do a full-length review on it, but I really like that. I And I've seen it for sale, like super sale, all the time. Well, that's where I got it. I think I got it on Amazon or Cool Stuff or Miniature Market for like 20 bucks or 15 bucks. It was crazy. Yeah, I don't know why that game's selling so cheap. I actually think it's better than the base Pandemic myself. I would definitely go out and buy that if you get an opportunity. So here's a second review. Last week, or two weeks ago, we gave you a second design discussion. This week, we'll give you a second review. Go buy Pandemic Iberia if you get a chance. I mean, it's it's very good, and especially if you see it on these super sales. All right, so anything else to talk about with uh, resolution since we're going a little bit long here? No, I mean, we kind of covered the four different ones. I mean, let's cover this from a designer's perspective, I think you said it best earlier, which is the default is dice. Unless you feel like you have something cool or different to offer with a card-based system, dice are fast, people are used to rolling dice. Like, I think it is an easy go-to. And if your game has complexities in other places, I wouldn't make this the place that you're going to add more complexity to the game. The nice part about Journeys in Middle Earth is their complexity is in the card system because all the other actions are very basic and very simplistic. So they put most of their complexity in the card resolution system. Yeah, and I think backing up what you said, Peter, as a designer, I would go one of two ways. Either make your task resolution as streamlined as humanly possible if it's not the centerpiece or not like a major part of the design, or make it intricate, make it interesting, give players agency, give them control. I don't know if there's much I would do like with kind of the middle ground where it takes a while to do, but I don't really have much choice and it's not really important what I'm doing. <laughs> that seems to be a, a pretty negative way to approach it. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like if combat is going to be, or actually any action resolution is going to be an action that is part of your turn and you're having quick turns normally, you don't want that turn to take five minutes and everybody else's turn to take 30 seconds. So if you have a game that typically plays fast, you also want that action resolution to play fast as well. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, anyway, uh, go play Journeys of Middle-Earth. We both recommend it. Go play uh, <laughs> Pandemic Iberia. We got a little second mini-review in there. We both recommend that. 
And uh, yeah, keep on uh, sending your comments. We'd love to hear from them. Games you uh, suggest we play. Join our Slack. And uh, go check out the YouTube channel. It's all called One Stop Co-op Shop now, so a lot easier to find us wherever we might be. All right, everyone. uh, Good gaming, and we'll see you at the next stop. Thanks for listening to another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Please check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop, where you can get great game playthroughs and five and five reviews. If you want to have a conversation with us, the best place to reach out to all of us is on the Slack channel. Links are in the show notes. You can also talk to us on Twitter at MVP Board Games or email us at MVPBoardGames at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us again, and we'll see you next week with another top five list. Yeah, well, it's between the first book, The Hobbit, and The Lord of the Rings. I think that is the probably most important thing to know. If you don't know Lord of the Rings, it's very fantasy, a world created by J.R.R. Tolkien. Is that right? J.R.R.? Tolkien. I heard Tolkien and Tolkien. Do we know? Either one is fine, but you said Tolkien with no L at all. Oh. (laughs) All right. He's a token. (laughs) He's the token guy writing fantasy. Clearly. So when you're comparing dice to no combat resolution, oh God, I said it again. <laughs> Literally two seconds after I said not combat resolution, action resolution. So when you compare things with no dice in their action point resolution system to things that, ah, forget it. <laughs> Peter so, has no point to make. <laughs> second design discussion this week we'll give you a second review go buy pandemic idea go buy pandemic iditarod about uh sled dogs <laughs> nice <laughs> which would be yeah, that'd be a cool theme for them to try and they might come you never know <laughs> that's right yeah i mean really great points there i don't really have anything to add <laughs> it's because i knocked it out of the park baby perfect you did it Hey, Mike. Yeah. Yahtzee.